Hello, and welcome back to the BioET, Cal BMES's podcast about all things BioE and beyond. Thanks for tuning in. today's co-host Emily. And I'm Jerry, uh, and we have a special guest with us here today, Professor Terry Johnson of BioE. Let's meet him. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here today. How are you doing? Oh, as well as can be expected, uh, getting through the semester, looking forward to Thanksgiving. I can definitely relate to that. We'll start off with a brief introduction. Most of those in the BioE community know who you are, but for those who do not, please introduce yourself. And then we'll talk a little bit about your roles at Berkeley. And then we'll move on to your path to BioE, teaching online classes, advice for engineers, and a short Q&A to get to know you a little better. Sure. Uh, I was born in Michigan, uh, moved around a little bit with my folks. Uh, my father worked for General Motors. Uh, so we sort of moved where they were building plants or doing renovations, uh, settled back in Michigan. Uh, I have a, a bachelor's in chemical engineering from Wayne State University in Detroit. Uh, and then I got a master's in chemical engineering from MIT. Uh, I taught briefly at MIT uh, and I moved to Berkeley in 2001. Uh, I started out uh, on staff, uh, and then I moved into a lecturer role, uh, and then eventually into a teaching professorship. Uh, so my current title is teaching professor. Uh, that's relatively new. I was an uh, associate teaching professor until recently. Uh, I am vice chair of undergraduate programs in the BioE department. Uh, I'm on COSI, the Committee on Courses of Instruction, which is one of the Senate committees involved with classes. Um, and I'm faculty director for UC Berkeley's Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, I also teach, as many of the people who are probably listening to this know, BioE 10, the course that all of the BioEs take with the exception of some of the transfer students. Uh, one of the fundamentals courses, BioE 104, uh, a couple of uh, freshman sophomore seminars, uh, and I've previously taught a variety of courses in the department. Yeah, that kind of leads into our next question. Um, so kind of as the uh, the professors of so many classes and as someone that's so uh, deeply ingrained into the department, um, you've kind of become like the face of BioE in a sense, you know, uh, to a lot of the students. But what drew you to BioE in particular? Like um, what drew you to Berkeley's BioE program, um, you know, as opposed to like maybe chem chemi or something along the like? Well, I like to be uh, very blunt and honest about this, uh, because I often feel that uh, students feel a pressure to make the right decision when they, you know, see someone that seems to be relatively happy in their jobs. Uh, the reality is that was the best opportunity available to me at the time. Uh, I am uh, originally a chemical engineer. Um, I worked in environmental engineering uh, for an automotive company uh, for uh, several years, both as an intern uh, and then uh, as uh, a, a beginning engineer. Uh, I went back to school in chemical engineering, planning to study catalysis, uh, moved into a bioengineering style project simply because that was of interest to me, you know, it was presented to me as an option and I thought it was really interesting. Um, I lectured there briefly, but when I was applying to uh, jobs, I applied to Berkeley. 
Um, I applied to other programs, uh, both bioE and chemical engineering, because I kind of had you know one foot in each at that time. I applied to Scientific American Frontiers, the television show. Uh, you know, I was looking in a wide variety uh, of places for my next step. Uh, and the reason why I am here is that it's still great. Uh, I still feel like I'm doing worthwhile work. Uh, I still feel like I'm learning things every day. Uh, I have opportunities to develop uh, professionally and personally. Um, but it has not been a grand plan. It has not been, uh, I knew that I wanted to do this since I was seven. Uh, it has simply been, and I'm gonna take the best opportunity uh, that I see for myself uh, at the time. And if that becomes exhausted, I will start looking for the next opportunity. Uh, I, I consider careers very much less a plan uh, and a process. Uh, it, it, it's about, it is about being open to things and to keep an eye on what you need and what you can do through your work. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any big plans for 20 years at Berkeley? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I definitely do want to celebrate somehow, um, but uh, to be honest, I have been so focused on uh, doing BioE 10 remotely, which is a pretty sizable class. It's definitely not the biggest on campus, but you know, uh, it, it's sizable. Uh, and working with the Center for Teaching and Learning, uh, I, I was a faculty advisor for them for, I think it's a couple of years, um, but I uh, accepted happily the directorship in February uh, so uh, basically the situation changed after I was in that seat for about five weeks. So I have been very busy uh, in uh, trying to be part of supporting faculty and supporting students, you know, through the switch to remote instruction. Um, I'm glad you asked that question is the short answer because I really should think about it. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big milestone. I said not many people get 20 years out of place and then get to keep moving up the ladder after the 20 years. So that's pretty awesome. If you had told me when I started that I would be at Berkeley 20 years later, I would have gone, really? Because I was still exploring. I was trying, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do long-term. So I think everyone that has met you at Berkeley is happy that you're here because definitely a professor to remember. All right, so our next question after what led you to that point is, like as students, we get to hear a lot of opinions on remote learning from other students. And so we wanted to get your opinion on what online school has been like from the perspective of, of an educator. <laughs> well, so here's what I would say. Um, and I think it is important, you know, to step back and to go, oh yeah, this is hard, right? Uh, I, when I talk with other faculty about this, uh, streaming a class is like playing a role on stage, right, in a play, but also being in charge of the lights at the same time. Uh, so there's a little bit of extra cognitive load that we're not used to. And there are certain pieces of information that we have to work very hard to get that are easier to get in the context of a course. Uh, at this point in a course, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm perfect at this, but I can usually take the temperature of a room just by glancing at people and get an idea, is everybody lost? Is everybody on board? 
you know, where, where are people right now? Uh, and you have to make more of an effort to do that in a remote context. Um, on the, the plus side, there's a variety of things that I have uh, been experimenting with that I would like to continue in future classes in BioE 10 right now. Um, uh, I want to, you know, emphasize mastery learning. So I'm using things like question banks and equation generators in uh, uh, e-courses so that everybody has a slightly different homework. But for many of the points, uh, you have seven tries. So the idea is that you can approach the homework uh, and if you get it wrong, um, you can step back and give it another try. And usually when people are still not getting the right answer after three or four tries, they, it's a great signal. Okay, I need to talk to my colleagues in my working group. I need to talk to the GSI. I need to talk to the instructor, right? Um, and from my point of view, if they get the answer in the end, that's what I want, right? That, that works. So I want to take advantage of those tools in the future uh, because, you know, like getting, getting it right in your first sort of shot at a homework, I feel is particularly stressful. And now it's hyper stressful because everything is stressful and I wanted to avoid that. Uh, but I would like to incorporate that where appropriate it's hard to do with certain things, um, but to incorporate that where appropriate in future classes. So, you know, there are things that are more difficult, but there are also things that I'm learning that uh, I'm looking forward to uh, incorporating into non-emergency remote instruction semesters. Gosh, yeah, thank, thank you for, um, for those words. That's uh, very, very insightful. Um, I think kind of relating to that. Uh, so uh, you've always had uh, some unique insights into how students in BioE kind of you know, behave and um, insight into the BioE community as a whole. Um, what, ex what advice do you have for BioE majors um, and engineers in general, kind of both in COVID and kind of outside of COVID? Oh, I, I think my main advice, uh, I'm just thinking of over the 20 years, what, what are the, the conversations that I've had the most number of times um, on what should I do? Like, what is the right job for me? What direction should I go in? Um, I think the most important advice that I give is, you're never gonna know if you made the right decision. You'll never know. So make one, but be open to changing it. As you learn more through having made that decision, uh, make better decisions with the information that you generate. Pick a direction that allows you to develop. And if it turns out not to be the right one, you move on. Everybody's career is like a pinball game where you're bouncing back and forth between projects and titles and the kinds of work. Uh, and you don't, you know, like decisions that you make now uh, are, are usually not going to have completely ruinous effects, you know, like, oh, but if I make this decision, will I ever be able to do this? I'm like, yeah, worst case, it might take two more years because you'll have to do some finagling to move in that direction, but it, it's always doable. Um, so not to get caught up in making the right decision because you will never, ever know that. There may be an even happier version of Terry Johnson who studied the classics and now teaches the Iliad. I'll never know. I'll never know that. 
right? So rather than drive myself mad by constantly trying to ruthlessly, excuse me, ruth, ruthlessly optimize my past or in the present to ruthlessly optimize my future, um, I'll just go up, oh, this is where I am. This is what the options are. Take the best one, uh, do the best that you can with it. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, like what, uh, what should guide me in that? Like, what do you wanna be the solution to? Like engineering is a solutions oriented discipline. So uh, I think it is important to consider there's certain disciplinary norms or uh, uh, typical workflows, right? So you, you do want part of your decision to be based on, I kind of like doing this thing at work rather than doing this thing at work. Um, but that often gets really overestimated in, you know, like I took this class and I really enjoyed the work in that class. So maybe I should do that. Ask yourself, is that class really what that person does 40 hours a day for three decades, right? Because that's usually not true. Work is much bigger than what happens in a single class. Uh, I tend to think that more important, you need to sit down and go, world's full of problems. Which problems would I like to be part of the solution for? Who solves those problems? I want to be that. Absolutely. I said, I think when you like when kids start to do that too, they find jobs that they're happier in as well. Because I know for myself, like coming into Berkeley, I definitely was like, I need to do this like this and then had like that plan. But then Berkeley kind of like knocked me down and I was like, okay, we're going to reevaluate. And it's now kind of just going through trying to figure out what's best for me, what's best for my community. And it's been way better than having that 40 year plan. It, it, the weight of that plan is so much. Um, and it, it, it has an inertia. Uh, I've talked with a number of students. Um, uh, this is going to sound like I'm picking on pre-medical students and I'm not. But pre-medical students are very often ones who have been uh, supported in that choice since they were very young because they wanted to be a doctor since they were very young. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's often works. You know, you might, you might go, I wanted to be a doctor when I was seven and I want to be a, a doctor when I'm 20. And that's totally great. But I do find that there are also students that get into maybe their second or third year and I'll have a conversation with them and they want to do something else at this point but they feel like giving they're giving up medical school and that 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 is a kind of failure where in reality what they're doing is i've discovered i like other things better i am releasing medical school as an option in favor of something else uh but they they often need to talk that out because the the weight of that plan which has been present for you know so much of their life um makes it difficult for them to be open to other opportunities 
yeah, I guess now we can kind of move into like a short Q&A, um, just like rapid fire, uh, some very random questions, it seems, from the bio we can, from the BMES community in particular. <laughs> um, I guess I can grab the first one, Emily, if that's all right with you. Yeah, so um, I think you've talked a bit about your career, um, but one person from uh, BME asks, what was your dream job as a kid? That's easy, Jedi. Yes. I mean, you get a lightsaber, uh, you wear pajamas all day, uh, you get to fly in an X-wing, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, next question is, Comes from Divya. Shout out Divya. What does it feel like being a god among men? Oh, the question is which god? Loki? Uh, Dionysus? Hermes? Uh, I like the trickstery ones. Um, uh, no, the reality uh, is I am unfortunately mortal, as are we all, uh, though I appreciate the sentiment. But as a bio professor, immortality could be generated in our lifetime. So assuming that you're the first man to live to 150, what God name would you take? Ooh, I think, I think I would probably, I would probably have to, ooh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a, a good, someone in a pantheon. I think that you, you'd have to be very careful. So I, I don't believe that we will have immortality, although we may have age extension. So if we were to develop uh, extension of ages, I think my goal would be to uh, develop some sort of pantheon that was devoted to that not turning into uh, a group of ultra rich immortal monsters lording it over the rest of the earth. Uh, so some sort of pantheon that makes sure that uh, whatever those benefits are, they are more equally distributed uh, than medicine is now. Okay, next one. Uh, how was your experience presenting at Silicon Valley Comic Con? I love doing those. So I presented at WonderCon, Silicon Valley Comic-Con, uh, a couple of other uh, conventions. And I think part of the fun is, you know, not everybody knows a scientist or engineer, you know, someone that professionally does science or engineering. Uh, and as a result, you know, talking to people that are, not necessarily interested in doing this for a career, but are interested in science, they're just super excited to talk to somebody who, who has access to the kind of information that not everybody does. Um, and by access, I mean, you know, like journals, right? I'm, I'm able to read journals that other people would have to read, uh, uh, pony up 40 bucks to read, right? Uh, and I have, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in a career position, you know, where part of my work is staying up to speed as much as I am able uh, on, you know, new things that are coming out in science and engineering. Uh, so it's just nice because the, the people that I have talked to, the questions that we get uh, are just incredibly earnest folks who are happy to be there and 
you know, don't have an opportunity to talk to a professor in an area that they're interested in on a regular basis. Uh, they, uh, they're also there because they love, you know, science fiction and fantasy and comic books and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and they want opportunities to sort of express, you know, what they love about it uh, in the context of the reason that I'm there, you know, the science, uh, how they find them inspiring, uh, what they have meant to them. Um, and I was that kid, right? Uh, I, whenever I get to speak at a convention, I'm just kind of like, I would have loved to have talked to me when I was a tiny me uh, at a convention like this. Uh, so it's just, a, it, it's, it's incredibly fun to be able to uh, like take an afternoon and be that for somebody. Also the costumes are great. The next question in our list of questions is what is your cat's Instagram? It is Henry Jones Jr. Terman. Uh, the junior is J-R, not fully spelled out. Uh, uh, that is the only uh, social media that I am at all involved with. It is not my account, it is my cat's account. Um, so if you see any other social media out there that claims to be uh, Terry Johnson, nope, no Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram, uh, but I do main, help maintain one for my cat. Is he here with you today? He's not in this room, but his sister adopted. Wait, is the, is the sister's name adopted? No. Uh, the Because of, you can see the sister's uh, coloration and the fact that one of her eyes has some damage. Uh, we found her on the streets of Berkeley. Um, we call this one uh, Harvey Mewface. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Oh, very, very lovely. I always love it when, when professor's cats kind of walk up on screen. I have one professor whose cat will kind of just jump across the, the, the um, keyboard every now and then. And she always gets, you know, a little flustered, but I always, it's a welcome addition to the class. Let me just say, if you have a pet, bring it on soon. Everybody needs to see that. Uh, I've never, I never heard a single complaint from anybody about a pet interrupting a class or a Zoom call. On the contrary, um, I've been in meetings where the first person to have a pet show up wins the meeting, that that's the official policy of that standing meeting. Great stuff. Um, I think our next question is, uh, so what are your, some of your hobbies outside of academia? Yeah, I, um, I read a lot of mystery novels, uh, particularly older ones. Uh, I, ages ago, I actually gave a talk at the fall reception for BMES uh, talking about various mystery novels and what I've learned from them. I'd like to revisit that because I, I, I think I can give a better talk. Um, I play uh, Dungeons and Dragons and various other RPGs. One of my uh, freshman, sophomore seminars is how to learn how to work with other people in groups uh, using uh, the RPG as a way to explore group dynamics uh, and uh, using the fact that it has rules uh, and a certain structure uh, to uh, figure out how groups go well and how groups don't and the questions you need to ask yourself about the other people in your group and your role in your group. And it's various uh, other things. I, I actually think that 
I have learned more about running meetings from D&D than any professional experience that I've had. If only we could start every meeting with rolling initiative, right? <laughs> oh, God. Because then there'd be an order, right? Uh, and everybody would get a turn, you know? It's initiative is a mechanic which is designed so that the loudest, most excited people will not necessarily dominate the action or the ideas or the stream of consciousness or whatever. Um, and seeing that makes you aware, not that you would roll initiative in a meeting, but, oh, you know, this works with control, you know, having having some sort of mechanism, whether it be explicit or implicit, um, to make sure that everybody has a freaking chance to talk is functional. That can be done. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, the same two hands out of 12 talking all the time. Definitely. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of lessons I think to be learned. I think it's, it's great that you kind of teach that. I don't think I've ever really seen D and D, uh, outside of like a, just a hobby context. So Oh, it's also being used uh, in therapy. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of folks that are using it in a form of group therapy. Um, the What's interesting is um, having that sort of highly structured, uh, you know, sense of communication, like having an explicit turn for you to say or do things. Um uh, having to, you know, think about a character and what they would do uh, are ways to, you know, develop empathy and socially interactive skills. Um, I think that there's there's a variety of ways that's it's being used by a small number of people. Uh, I just, you know, tend this is my overlap. I'm not a therapist, um, but. Uh, I've definitely worked with engineering teams for a really long time, and I've taught engineering teams for a really long time. So I think that this, the rules that people develop, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting lost in this, but I'll, I'll say one other thing. Uh, I'm sure that many of us have been on a, a team with someone who is upset, um, and very often the person who is upset is the one insisting that I'm not upset. I'm being perfectly rational. That's why I raise my voice like this. Uh, and, you know, very often that upset comes from a, a communications mismatch or um, a sense that of personal attack when, you know, people's ideas are being dis discussed, you know, like a, a, a misunderstanding of what's happening in the room. Uh, and figuring out ways to get everyone, if possible, but as many people on board with a shared experience that this is what we are doing here and this is how we're going to do it is a way to avoid those counterproductive conflicts. Very insightful. Our next question, it's a big jump from insightful. How many Diet Cokes do you drink a day? <laughs> Oh, you know, um, in quarantine fewer because they're pretty heavy to bring back from the grocery store. Uh, so I'm kind of leaning on coffee uh, a little heavier. Oh, I probably drink the equivalent of um, six caffeinated beverages a day. 
don't don't do this at home. Uh, yeah. I said caffeine keeps the kids going. It's the Berkeley vibe. Um, our last question today kind of comes from, I believe it was Arnoff. Um, so what was it like living around MIT versus Berkeley? Um, and this is a question that's also, I'm very invested in because uh, I'm looking at schools around Boston and, and grad schools around the Bay Area. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I enjoy living in Berkeley and I enjoyed living in Boston as well. Um, I think that they're both uh, great towns. Um, you know, uh, Berkeley has within a two, two and a half hour drive, um, a lot of uh, nature. Um, it, there's also some of that near Boston. I think that you know, the, the kind of nature that you're talking about in Boston is, uh, this is the time, like fall in Boston is fantastic. Uh, the colors are amazing. Um, uh, like it's a great, a great place to go driving uh, uh, in the area because you can go and just see some, some beautiful stuff. There's a lot of history, obviously. Um, I, uh, obviously the weather is very different. Um, but you know, cold, you can, you can dress for it. Um, I, uh, I would not let weather, you know, get in the way unless it's a health issue of where you want to live. Um, trying to think of, of the, the living part that I, that I sort of recollect walking along the Charles is beautiful in Boston. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great place to run or walk, uh, MIT, uh, when I was there, at least, I don't know, it's thousands of years ago. Uh, but they, uh, allowed you, if you were a student to take one of the sailboats out on the Charles, you know, you know, uh, with a deposit, which you got back. So there was a time in my life. I knew how to sail. That is all lost now. Uh, I don't even remember the knots. Um, but yeah, I, I would say the nice thing about it is that there are great things to do both indoors and outdoors. They're very different from the indoors and outdoors stuff that is also great at Berkeley. So if you, you know, like you've had a lot of experiences at Berkeley uh, and you're going to Boston, you will have the opportunity to have a variety of, of different experiences. Um, if specifically you're looking at MIT, uh, I'd also say when I was there, the MIT Taekwondo Club was great. Toscanini's is the best ice cream that I've had, uh, I think ever. Uh, Tara's Organic is pretty close in Oakland, but I think Toski's would win. Um, and uh, I think fall is something you don't want to miss. Don't, don't get too caught up in classes because the changing colors, especially if you've been in Berkeley for a while, um, are just marvelous. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult to overstate um, the feeling you get uh, as you watch trees mark time. Interesting, yeah. Uh, personally, I'm from Florida. So, you know, I think uh, seeing the, the, the colors change at Berkeley were, were very interesting, but I imagine it must be even more pronounced in, uh, in Boston. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. Okay, well, uh, it looks like today's episode's coming to a close, but uh, what is your go-to boba order? Seeing as this is the bio-ET. Um, I'm old school, uh, milkshake. Yeah, I'll go next door. Strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, 
mint doesn't matter. Um, I, I, I'd be like boba without the boba milkshake. I'm sorry to disappoint. Oh no, I'm, I'm exactly the same. Well, that brings our episode to a close. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and everybody have a uh, safe and productive and as minimally stressful as possible rest of 2020. All right. With that, thank you very much. Um, and that comes uh, to a close for our episode today. We'll be back again with another professor chat soon. Uh, so stay tuned. And that's the bio week.